Well, good morning. And like Caleb said, this is the first Sunday in the Advent season. And so we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John as we are reminded of the meaning and significance of the birth of Jesus. And so for the rest of the year, we're going to be in this series called The Promised One, looking at passages from the Old Testament that speak about the coming of Jesus. Christmas is a time to look back at the victory of Jesus's first coming, but it's also a time to look forward to his second coming. And so that's what we're going to be celebrating from now until the end of the year. Before we begin this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we turn our attention to the reading and preaching of scripture, Lord, we confess how prone we are to warp and distort its message. Lord, we confess we would rather distort the truth sometimes than bow before it. And so, Lord, we pray that by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, that this morning you would help us to hear, help us to believe, and help us to obey what the Spirit is saying to the church in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we start this morning, I want to give you guys a Christmas quiz. And this quiz only has one question. The question I have this morning is this. What was the reason that the Son of God appeared? What was the reason that the Son of God appeared? Why did Jesus come to this earth? What is the point of Christmas? A couple days ago, I asked my nieces who were in town visiting if, if they had math books and that had answers in the back for the odd-numbered questions. And they replied, we don't use math books. And then they laughed at me, <laughs> which made me feel stupid and old. But when I was in school, we had math books. And if you turn to the last few pages, you'd be able to see the answers for the odd-numbered questions. Does anyone else remember this? All right, cool. <laughs> I'm not alone in this. Well, our Bible is laid out in a similar way. There are answers in the back of the book. And so back to the quiz, right? So what was the reason that the Son of God appeared? We find the answer to our question in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And John says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the works of the devil. And so now, no doubt, John had Genesis 3 in his mind when he was writing this. And so this morning, I really want to focus on just one verse in Genesis 3, verse 15. There's this amazing promise that God makes. And what we will see is that the fulfillment of this promise is why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. The fulfillment of this verse is why we have all these beautiful Christmas hymns. 
It's the reason that we have hope and joy in this season. So take a look again at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. Proto meaning first, Evangelium, gospel, the first gospel. These words spoken by God contain the first promise of redemption in the Bible. And they hint at the incarnation, the hint at the crucifixion, the hint at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Genesis 3.15 contains the first Advent prophecy, the coming of Jesus. And it's also interesting that God, uh, as he's coming to pronounce curses in the text here, as he's coming to pronounce judgment, he actually comes with the gospel before announcing judgment on Adam and Eve. That's significant. And in pronouncing the curse on the devil, he embeds his grace and mercy in the curse. One of my favorite preachers, Sinclair Ferguson, has said this, the rest of the Bible is just an extended footnote of Genesis 3.15. The rest of the Bible is just explaining this verse. This is one of the key texts in the Old Testament, and it's pointed to all throughout the Bible until the promised seed, our Lord Jesus, comes And so for those of you who are taking notes this morning, I've organized this message into three sections. We're going to see man's fall into sin. We're going to see God's declaration of war and Christ's victory over Satan. And the main point, what I hope you see in the text, is this. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that God will deliver us completely from Satan's power through his son. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that God will deliver us completely from Satan's power through his son. So we've just looked at the first 15 verses in chapter three, and we see the story of the human race, mainly the fall of man into sin. It didn't take long for the evil one to come in and deceive. He came in with subtle temptations. He's crafty and deceitful. Our text says that he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent, whom we know to be Satan, tempted Adam and Eve into rebelling against God's word. And we know that the serpent is Satan because in Revelation chapter 12, John describes him as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's how we know who we're dealing with here. Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, that ancient 
serpent. He's very subtle. He first goes to the woman. He bypasses the man, the one who's been called by God to lead and protect. And he uses the woman to tempt the man. The core of what the evil one does here, the core of our problem is a confusion of what God is actually like. The God who said that you can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. The God who is so full of goodness. The God who gives them everything. Satan comes and he questions the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. What does he say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God knows that in the day that you eat, you won't really die. Adam and Eve gave in to the wrong thoughts about God. You see Eve entertaining the conversation here. She's giving in. And even before she commits the act of eating the fruit, she says that the Lord told her not to even touch it. Did you notice that there in the text? This is something that God had not even said. Eve is adding to the word of God here. Legalism. Allowing the evil one to twist the scriptures. And we're faced with the same temptations all around us. From our TV screens to our phones to conversations with other people, all the same lies, all the same deceits, all the same misconceptions about God are there. So that you would not run to him, but that you would run from him. Right? So what do Adam and Eve do when they sin? Instead of going to God, who walk with them in the cool of the day, they run from him. They hide from him. This is exactly what Satan wanted. Did you notice that the Lord pursues them? He says, where are you? Why are you hiding? Of course he knows where they are. He confronts them like you would confront a child who was caught red-handed. He's trying to cultivate a response of confession and repentance. But instead, the man blames the woman and blames God. And then the woman blames the serpent. And we're not very different from that, are we? Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam passed his sinful nature to all who came after him. All of us are sinners by nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We see this happening in the garden, but we also see that happening in our own lives. Exchanging the truth for creaturely things. That's our world. The grip that material things have 
on us. The idolatry that we have for the things that we own or for the accomplishments that we have made. We're willing to exchange the truth of God for these things. We bow the knee to the things that God has created rather than the Lord himself. We all have sinned not only because we've broken God's law, but we have all sinned because we've fallen short of the glory of God. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to love him in such a way that our lives are drawn into him. And we reflect his glory. It's not that we've been bad and we need to try and do better. We are completely unable to do better because of sin. God has given us everything, and we've missed it. So after God tries to get Adam and Eve to confess, he brings about judgment. Look at how the Lord lines them up in order in which they rebelled. Verse 14, to the serpent. Verse 15, to the woman. Verse 17, to Adam. There's judgment The serpent would crawl on its belly. The woman would have pain and childbearing. And then the man would toil for food and then return to the dust. But in this cursing of the serpent, God does something amazing. Before he talks about the punishment to the man and the woman, he makes a promise that's full of grace. Look again at verse 15. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He says, I will put enmity. You see what God's doing here? God is declaring war against Satan. And it's interesting that God never says to Adam and Eve, now in light of the fact that you've rebelled against me, in light of the fact that you did what I told you not to do, here are the things that you need to do to get back in my good graces. That's not what he says. In this verse, God is saying, I am going to do something about this. I'm going to wage war against the one who tempted you. He doesn't say, save yourselves. He says, I'm going to war for you. There's going to be conflict between the kingdom that God is building and the kingdom of darkness. And we see three types of enmity in this passage. The first enmity we see here is between Satan and the woman. Even though Eve gave in to the temptation, even though she disobeyed God's word, here we are told that God is going to make conflict between Satan and Eve, which means that God will work in Adam and Eve's hearts to cause them to love and obey God again. Satan hated Eve. He hated her from the beginning. He pretended to care for her. But he only did this to use her. But now Eve will have hatred towards Satan. There's enmity between the woman 
and Satan, but also enmity between their offspring. That word offspring or seed is an important word in Genesis and all throughout the Bible. And in verse 15, it has two senses. It's both singular and plural. But the offspring of the serpent doesn't mean Satan and his demons, but it refers to all of natural humanity, those who love self and hate God. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Those who don't believe are the seed of the serpent. And those who love God and who obey him, they are the seed of the woman. And for those of you who here this morning, the question is, which offspring are you? Are you the seed of the serpent? Or are you the seed of the woman? We're told that there will be this conflict between the offspring. In the next chapter, chapter 4, Cain, the seed of the serpent, kills Abel. Then we have the Tower of Babel. We see the seed of the serpent trying to overthrow God's kingdom. There's Egypt against Israel and Babylon against Israel and Goliath against David. There's enmity, conflict, enmity between the Satan and the woman, between the generations of offspring. And then lastly, there's this conflict between singular offspring and the seed of the woman. The offspring of the woman is promised to crush the head of the serpent. There's a promise of a child. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of this longing for this promised seed. After Cain kills Abel, God gives Adam and Eve Seth, but he wasn't the promised seed. More sons followed, generations came and went. And then in Genesis 9, God says to Noah, the promise is to you and to your offspring. And those words are repeated to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. They thought it was Isaac, but then Isaac died. And you'll hear echoes of that promise to you and to your seed, to you and to your offspring, to you and to your descendants, to you and to your children, to your children's children. And it begins this great theme that is picked up on throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. And not only does Sarah wait long before she's given a child, Ruth is given a child who would be a restorer of life, a redeemer. But he was just a shadow of the promised seed. And then we have the prophecy of the virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, and on and on and on until finally, until finally, Mary bears a child. This theme is picked up in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it says, 
And the angel said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Paul says in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now you see what's going on here. Satan used the woman that God had created as a tool. He deceived her and used her to bring out the destruction of the whole human race from the beginning. But God says, that's your plan, Satan? That's your plan? You're going to bring sin into humanity through the disobedience of this woman? Well, I'm going to use a woman to bring the Savior of the world who's going to crush your head. The whole Bible is a story of this conflict that God is setting up for the salvation of his people. And this conflict reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. God declared war on the evil one. In order to make things right, he says, I will. I will put enmity. So back to our question. Why did Jesus come into the world? There's many answers for this. But John says, for this reason, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is about the war that Jesus rages against Satan. This is why Jesus came into the world, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why a baby was born in a manger. That's why he grew up in wisdom and stature. That's why his ministry started with that great temptation in the wilderness. That's why his whole life was in constant conflict with the evil one until he defeated him on the cross, which Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus Christ came into this world to battle with Satan. And so when Jesus, the promised child, the seed of the woman was born, Satan moved. Satan moved Herod to kill all the babies two years old and under. And at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why? So he could face Satan with the same temptation that Adam faced. The same temptation that Adam failed at. But he... Jesus, as the second Adam, came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He came to restore and bring his people back to the garden. And as Jesus shares with his disciples that he must go to the cross, Peter rebukes him and says, this shall never happen to you, Lord. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Satan was trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross. And then, it's kind of weird, but Satan's strategy changes. He tries to get Jesus to the cross as quickly as he can. Instead of using Peter, he uses Judas. In the Gospels, it says that Satan actually entered into Judas, 
which leads to the arrest and the betrayal and beatings and crucifixion of Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this verse, we see that the Savior must be a man, right? He shall bruise your head. We also see that the Savior must be more than a man because he'd have to conquer the one who had conquered man. We see Jesus' victory over Satan in this verse. We have promise of both death and victory. How does a man kill a snake? By crushing his head. How does a poisonous snake kill a man? By biting his heel. You almost would expect this verse to say, he shall bruise your head, period. Satan, you're done. Right? But it's interesting that this one who is born of the woman, who has victory over the serpent, is going to be wounded as well. The only way to reverse what Adam and Eve had done is for the seed to bear the punishment that they deserve. The promised seed must die in order to save his people from their sins and defeat the power of the devil. And so how does Jesus crush the head of the serpent? He resists Satan's temptations. He lives a life of total obedience to the Father. And at the end of his life, he is brought to a tree. That's where it started, right? Started at a tree, ends with a tree. And on that tree, on the cross, Jesus bears the judgment of God against our sin. And he breaks the dominion of Satan and sin. At the cross, Satan bruised Christ's heel. And at first, it seems like it's victory for Satan. John Gerstner writes this, Satan had nailed Jesus to the cross. The prime object of all his striving through all the ages was achieved, but he failed. For the prophecy which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman had also said that his head would be crushed by Christ's heel. Thus, while Satan was celebrating his triumph in battle over the Son of God, the full weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil had affected, came down on him, and he realized that all this time he had been carrying out the purposes of the all-wise God. <laughs> this was God's plan all along, to bruise the Savior, for our iniquities. What, what Satan failed to see is that God is both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. He failed to see how Jesus would take the place of sinners, bearing their punishment, and how he would have his power broken. Again, Gerstner calls Satan the greatest blockhead the world has ever known. He says, the very fact that he is probably the most intelligent being ever created makes him the greatest blockhead. For he was supremely stupid 
to suppose that he could outthink the all-wise and almighty God. Jesus is the seed of the woman, the man who crushed Satan's head. And because of that, at the end of the book, Romans, in, in, in Romans, Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because Jesus conquered Satan, those who are in Christ will conquer him as well. So in Genesis 3.15, we see the gracious work of God. He says, I will do this. He doesn't tell Adam and Eve what to do. He says, this is what I will do. He doesn't say, if you do this and this and this, you will be saved. God is so gracious and so good that no sooner than, than our parents' first sin and we all fall, God says, I'm going to redeem a people for myself. So this morning, God wants you to know about his grace and his mercy. He wants you to have the right thoughts about him. Christmas is so much more than lights and presents and trees. Christmas is about Jesus coming to save his people from their sins and to destroy the works of the devil. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't believed in Jesus, that means that you are the seed of the serpent. Apart from Christ, you're in a state of spiritual death and subject to the devil's power. And one day you will suffer eternal punishment in hell for your sins. But if you come to God and confess your sins, he will deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you will have redemption and the forgiveness of your sins. Turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And for those who do believe, our spiritual war with Satan continues. The devil is seeking whom he may devour. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. But thanks be to God for Jesus, because in him we have victory over sin. We have victory over death. We have victory over hell, and we have victory over the devil himself. And so we have the power to resist Satan. We have the power to flee from sin. Let's believe and obey God's word and continue to trust in Jesus Christ. And so during this Advent season, as we think about the dark and broken world in which we live, let's not ground our hope in the sentiment of just a holiday. Let's not ground our hope in our own abilities. We know this, but we don't find hope in politics. Our hope is not in 2023. Our confidence and our hope lies in that baby of Bethlehem, born of a woman who has crushed the serpent's head at the cross. Our hope lies in the one who will come again. Every temptation will cease. 
all the affliction and the opposition, all the cultural pressure that we feel in this moment will be over. That's our hope. And so do you live in a hope like that? Hope that's not in ourselves. Hope that's not in one another. The Christian's hope is in Christ alone. And that's the message of our text here. That's the message of Christmas. It's the message for the world. God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Amen. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that God will deliver us completely from Satan's power through his son. Let's pray.